come on to <coughs> chapter 4. Uh, this is called The Relevance of Concentration. This chapter is devoted to the expression free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. Vinaya Abhija Dhammanasa. So it's devoted to this expression and its implications. Since the freedom from desires and discontent envisaged in this final part of the definition it points to the developmental uh, sorry, it points to the development of mental composure when practicing Satipatthana. In this chapter I investigate the role of concentration in the context of insight meditation and try to ascertain the degree of concentration needed for realization. Thereafter, I examine the general contribution of concentration to the development of insight and their interrelatedness. So looking, this is an age-old question, uh, how much concentration do you need to do to develop insight? They've been asking this ever since the Buddha's time. So. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a, a perennial uh, say, yeah, path of inquiry. So uh, and some of the, um, the things that uh, Venerable Analio has to say, extremely uh, helpful and um, uh, observant uh, in terms of understanding the teachings and presenting them. Well, firstly, freedom from desires and discontent. The definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta concludes with the expression free from desires and discontent in regard to the world, which is uh, the um, expression uh, Morris Walsh translates as uh, uh, free from hankering and fretting, which is a very um, colourful and also accurate, helpful way. Hankering and free from hankering and fretting gives a, a sense of that sort of <laughs> agitated, uh, distressed quality uh, that uh, is sort of part of that, um, uh, the uh, sort of obstructive nature of those. Uh, those experiences. According to the Neti Pakarana, which is one of the um, uh, uh, sections of the Abhidharma, if I remember correctly, to be free from desires and discontent, quote-unquote, represents the faculty of concentration. This suggestion finds support in some discourses which slightly vary the definition, replacing free from desires and discontent with references to a concentrated mind or to experiencing happiness. These passages indicate that freedom from desires and discontent represents mental calm and contentment. The commentaries go further and identify this part of the definition with the removal of the five hindrances. This is sometimes understood to imply that the five hindrances have to be removed prior to embarking on Satipatthana contemplation. Therefore, this expression requires a detailed examination in order to see how far such a, a stipulation is justified. So just as uh, Garikar Eva was asking a, a long time ago, um, <clears throat> when it says, now free from desires and discontent, is that implying that uh, in order to even start on any kind of Satipatthana contemplation, the mind has to be free of those um, 
attraction towards things or repulsion or, or contention against things. And so uh, Venerable Analio goes into a long exploration of that and uh, what is uh, say, uh, conveyed in the teachings with respect to, to uh, the meaning of that term and whether it, it's implying that, yes, all five hindrances have to be um, uh, uh, transcended, eradicated before the Satipatthana can begin, or is it more of a progressive uh, 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 issue? Is it something that is done in smaller increments, you know, piece by piece uh, along the way? How does it, how does it work? The Pali term rendered free is vineya, V-I-N-E-Y-Y-A, vineya, from the verb vineti, to remove. Although vineya is best translated as, quote-unquote, having removed, this does not necessarily imply that desires and discontent must be removed before undertaking the practice of satipatthana. It can also mean that this activity takes place simultaneously with the practice. So as part of the development of Satipatthana, there is, as that contemplation on, say, the body or feelings or mind states is occurring, that um, that, uh, say, fr- uh, freeing the mind from the habits of, of, uh, of uh, desire, uh, the uh, um, apija, or the uh, discontent, the uh, aversion, negativity, that is something that's being sort of guided and crafted as uh, the the practice um, is pursued. This way of understanding concurs with the general picture provided in the discourses. In a passage from the Anguttara Nikaya, for example, the practice of Satipatthana does not require, but rather results in, overcoming the hindrances. So rather than having to get rid of the hindrances first and then Satipatthana begins, as it were. It's uh, more that uh, when the Satipatthana has been developed in a, a, a full and comprehensive way, then the result of that is that the, the hindrances have been let go of. So that's a very different picture. Similarly, according to a discourse in the Satipatthana Sangita, lack of skill in the practice of Satipatthana prevents a practitioner from developing concentration and overcoming defilements. This statement would be meaningless if the development of concentration and the absence of mental defilements were prerequisites for the practice of Satipatthana. So if you can follow the, the logic of that, so it just, that statement wouldn't make sense if um, uh, all of, the, defi- all of the, um, uh, the hindrances had to be gone first of all. So it implies that yeah, you can still be practicing Satipatthana with the presence of the, the five hindrances, karma chanda, uh, sense desire, or aversion, ill will, and so forth. Yeah. That it, those are being worked with along the way. Desires, abhicca, and discontent, domanasa, the two mental qualities whose removal is stipulated in the definition, occur, again, in relation to the last four steps in the 16-step scheme for mindfulness of breathing, described in the Anapanasati Sutta. And the Satipatthana Sutta and the Anapanasati Sutta, they, they exist as a something of a pair. They, uh, the um, mindfulness of breathing discourse is very much based around the four Satipatthanas, and uh, they, they mirror each other. It's like, and the Buddha is speaking about how to develop the Satipatthanas through the, uh, the means of focusing on the, the breath and developing mindfulness of, of breathing and how that relates to the body, feelings, 
mental formations and, and dhammas uh, in relationship to, to the breath. So he's saying that in that dhamma nupasana, in relationship to the uh, mindfulness of breathing, that last section of the mindfulness of breathing sutta, and in that uh, you're looking at the changing quality, the arising and passing of the different aspects of the, the breath, the, the, in a way it's, uh, um, it's developing wisdom, uh, the wisdom faculty around the quality of change uh, in relationship to the, to the breath. Uh, he says, according to the Buddha's explanation, by this stage of practice, freedom from desires and discontent has been achieved. This explanation suggests that the same was not yet the case for the previous 12 steps, which the Buddha nevertheless described as corresponding to the first three satipatthanas. So he equates uh, each of the four stages with the four satipatthanas, but the, in the fourth one, he sort of mentions along the way oh, that, the, you know, that with that fourth stage, the dhammanupasana in relationship to the breath, then, as, uh, as he points out, that the freedom from desires and discontent, so by that stage of developing that um, more acute quality of wisdom and that sort of reflective wisdom around the, the, the arising and passing of the, of the breath, then uh, seeing that the, in order for that to be seen clearly, then that means that the um, desire and discontent have to have been let go of already. So that it's, uh, and then the implication was that they were all still, they were both still operating during the, the first three. Um, Stages of the of the first three sections of of the uh, development of mindfulness of breathing. The disappearance of discontent on its own occurs also in the direct path passage of the Satipatthana Sutta, where its removal is a goal of Satipatthana practice. All these passages clearly demonstrate that a complete removal of desires and discontent is not a prerequisite for satipatthana, but comes about as a result of successful practice. So, but, uh, <clears throat> but also, you know, with, as with all of these teachings, you know, these things can be um, uh, talked about and explained sort of in, in a very authoritative way. It's this way. It's, uh, it's, it's like this. It's like that. But uh, it's all. It, uh, it's always important to be. Uh, taking these and saying, well, is that so? Or how do I experience that? Or does that match what um, I've seen happening in my mind? Or, or, or how does that work? I can hear the words and I can understand them, but it's important to be, when there's a particular passage or expression that's, that seems meaningful, but we don't quite, it's not quite clear to us, or we don't quite understand, or we're not quite sure how it works, to be picking that up and deliberately uh, uh, looking at it, exploring it. So the mental qualities to be removed are desires, abhicca, and discontent, dhammanasa. The commentaries identify these with the entire set of the five hindrances. As a matter of fact, in several discourses, desires, abhicca, do, uh, do replace the more usual sensual desire, karmachanda, as the first of the hindrances. It's difficult to understand, however, why discontent, dhammanasa, should correspond to the, to the hindrance of aversion. In the discourses, Discontent, dominasa, stands for any kind of mental de dejection, which would not necessarily be related to aversion, and certainly not be synonymous with it. Besides, even if one were to accept the, question the questionable equating of discontent with aversion, one would still have to account for the remaining three hindrances. So I think he's being a little bit fussy there, because uh, I think when the Buddha uses that expression, desire and discontent, hankering and fretting, it's, it seems to be... Uh, a bit more of a general 
So generally, you know, the, the mind agitated moving towards things, the, the mind agitated by uh, resisting or, or contending against things, and so that they, it's, a, it's not, they're not particularly refined terms uh, as, as, I, as I read it. And so um, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree. I think just the, the uh, aversion, negativity, you know, we, we use, can use those words in English fairly broadly, and I, I feel that... Um, that it's it's fair enough to say you know, uh, discontent or aversion, negativity, that sense of, of um, uh, contending against things. It's all within the same scope. But I would also I, I would um, uh, I would agree with him though that it doesn't really quite encompass things like dullness, uh, restlessness, and and doubt. That 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 doesn't really seem to be a, a perfect match. But the commentaries are often. Um, coming up with ways of trying to make a, a neat package of things where the, uh, the actuality is not uh, not necessarily that neat. If it were really essential to remove the five hindrances before undertaking the practice of Satipatthana, several of the meditation practices described in the Satipatthana Sutta would be rendered superfluous. These are the contemplation of unwholesome feelings and of unwholesome states of mind worldly feelings, mind affected by lust or anger, and in particular awareness of the presence of just these five hindrances as the first contemplation of dhammas. So in the, the fourth uh, section of the Satipatthana, uh, the Dhammanupasana, the very first one, the, the, the first chunk of that fourth section, is um, reflecting on the presence and, and the absence of the, the five hindrances. So that would it make a nonsense of that. It's like, well, if they're supposed, if they're supposed to have been let go of completely, how can you be reflecting on them or contemplating them? That they're not there. They've gone. So these Satipatthana instructions clearly suggest that unwholesome states of mind, whether they be desires, discontent, or any of the hindrances, need not prevent one from practicing Satipatthana, since they can profitably be turned into objects of mindful contemplation. In the light of these considerations, it seems quite probable that the Buddha did not envisage the removal of the five hindrances as a necessary precondition for the practice of Satipatthana. In fact, if he intended to stipulate their removal as a requirement for undertaking Satipatthana, one might wonder why he did not explicitly mention the hindrances as he invariably did when describing the development of absorption or jhana. Uh, any um, particular questions or reflections on, on that so far? Yes. I was wondering. A- Alex, is that right? Yes. Alex, I'm slowly learning people's names. I was wondering, um, is faith um, supposed to be used to develop intuition? Is faith supposed to be used? Well, they're, they're connected, aren't they? In some, re- I mean, It depends how you use the word intuition. So Lumpur Zameda would use uh, his... Um, uh, expression intuitive wisdom is uh, a rendering of sati sampajanya mindfulness and uh, clear comprehension or mindfulness and full full awareness because he uh, but he didn't like clear comprehension because it sounded a bit too heady like clear comprehension being that uh, yet you are mindful of something and you understand it so he 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 re, uh, this is uh, as I recall him speaking about it, he said, well, it sounds like you've got to understand things in order to be mindful of them. And he was like, 
No, <laughs> because often the the more mindful you are of something, the more mysterious it can be, or like, or the more the mind goes into a, a, a state of wonderment. You don't understand it conceptually at all, but you're aware of it. So he, uh, and he's a very creative thinker. So he, he pondered, well, how can you, how can you convey that quality of of um, paying attention, um, but yet not necessarily having an intellectual uh, understanding. You haven't got a map at that particular time, or the map is <laughs> for a different region. You know? um, so he came up with this term intuitive wisdom, because the, in English the word intuition, it, it, uh, it carries a meaning of like a, a feeling that you have that things are a certain way, but you're not really sure. It's like you've got an intuition that uh, this uh, might be the right way or a way of explaining it, but you're not sure whether Alex is really going to understand. You know, there's a, so that that intuition is a, that uh, like an unformed sense, like, uh, uh, and so that he thought that was a, a good way of, of expressing that quality of sampajanya. That there's a there's a wisdom faculty there. You're paying attention, but uh, that. That wisdom doesn't necessarily uh, manifest as an, an intellectual understanding or a clear explanation for things. So, in terms of your question about faith, then faith is, is similar. It's a faith is not b- believing in something that you that you hope to be true or you um, you've been told is true, but rather uh, it's difficult. Sadha is more uh, correctly translated as as confidence. Or the, uh, or the readiness to step forward into the dark when you don't really know what's under your foot, but you're ready to, to go forward and, and test it out. So you, it's, it's also connected to the qualities of, of courage, um, and, uh, and there's an element of, of risk you don't really know, but, you're ready, but there's a sense of, of readiness to, to go forward or, or to, um, to, to trust. Uh, but it, it's not. It's it's different from a uh, from a belief where, in a sense, belief. At least how English is usually used. Belief is like an idea that is supposed to fill up your uncertainty. You banish uncertainty by believing something is true. Right, um, and so that's at least how I, I generally use the word belief. So it's like you're you're getting rid of uncertainty by taking an idea and saying, no, this is true. <laughs> you're, you're getting rid of, uns- you're masking the uncertainty by filling up that, that unknown with a belief. Whereas sadha is, in a way, it's not filling up the unknown. It's letting the unknown still be the unknown, but you're ready to walk into it anyway. That's not a very succinct description. But <laughs> Does it aid your, your intuition when you, have, when you have that faith? Well, they... they, uh, they um, in a way that it's it's fed by that intuition of like well i've got a feeling that that if i put my if i if i step forward in the dark um that it's possible i have something to put my foot down on i th- i think there is but i don't know so it's in a way it's like the intuition is okay you're going to take a step forward in the dark that you, you, your intuition gives you the direction that you 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 feel is the best way to go and then the faith is the the kind of oomph that follows up on that intuition. So, if you like, intuition is 
is like a sense of direction, sort of spiritual sense of direction. And then the faith is the actual, the application of energy to, to uh, or the, or the, the, the readiness to, to uh, act upon that intuition, that sense of direction. I mean, it's a good thing to, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like, okay, how does that work? Faith and intuition. What do I mean by that? And just to, in, the, in a meditation and in your own time, to be picking up those individual words. Like, and, and say, when we talk about faith, well, how is that different from believing? And what does it, how do I relate to that in my gut? You know, how does that work? And then what's that, and how does that function in relationship to intuition? So that you're picking up the terms and exploring them. And sometimes it's just, it's not clear. I don't really know what the heck that's about. I don't know how that works. Uh, but you're, you're, you don't, again, you don't feel like, I've got to figure it out, you know, <laughs> creating tension and, and sort of stress in yourself because you feel like you've got to have a conceptual understanding because it's more helpful in terms of contemplation and reflection, developing that, that capacity to be able to, to say, well, I don't really know how those fit together, but I'm interested, and I'll just just park them on the mystery, on the sort of the TBD, the to be decided shelf, or the mystery mystery section. Okay, well that's that's interesting to look at. I'm not sure how that works, and and then just that, uh, revisiting that from time to time. Like with uh, for myself, in particular, I'd never really heard of dependent origination at all till I came. I was in Thailand for a couple of years uh, and then came back to England um, in late 79, just after Chithurst had begun. And, and so uh, and Lumpur Sumedha would, would give lots, of, lots and lots of Dhamma talks and he would occasionally talk about dependent origination, Paticca Samupada. And so then you, uh, you'd hear him speaking and you and think, well, I, well, what's all that about? And then you'd look it up in, a, in one of the suttas and you go, what? <laughs> what the heck is that about? And uh, not really able to understand it at all, how those things... So uh, I, I use that a lot That in listening to, it, look to uh, Lumpur's teachings and then just whole chunks of it, I think, well, Sankara, Vijnana, consciousness and formations, and how does that fit together? And what's that about? And so just letting that be sort of mysterious or unknown or not clear for years. You know, just say, okay, well, I've got the feeling and desire bit. Okay. <laughs> Vedana and Tanha, right, right, right. Yeah, that's, that's uh, definitely knowable territory. I can, I can see how that works. But these other bits, ah, I've got a clue what that's talking about, really. And then over time, sort of go back and visit it and pick it up from time to time and then what you often happens is that when you're not quite looking at it uh, directly or it's sort of there in your field of, of um, contemplation and then suddenly, oh, you just hear uh, someone using a particular term or you see a, you, you hear a, um, an expression and you go, oh, all right, that's how that works. Or just something comes to you when you're brushing your teeth or you're walking through the forest and, ah, oh, maybe that's it. And so then... then it, but it can be sitting there for years. Yeah. So, it, and and I think one of the reasons why Lumpur Sumedha liked that term intuitive wisdom is like that you don't. It doesn't mean that you're being unmindful because you haven't 
figured out some kind of particular meaning or particular pattern of how the mind works in certain areas. Okay? It doesn't have to be okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that that that's what I would encourage. Just uh, let it um, percolate. Okay. Let's see. The two mental qualities of desires and discontent, which the Buddha did mention in the Satipatthana definition often occur in the discourses in relation to sense restraint. Indriya Sangwara, it's in the Pali. At this stage, the meditator guards the sense doors in order to prevent sense impressions from leading to desires and discontent. Judging from these contexts, the expression desires and discontent refers in a general way to the likes and dislikes in regard to what has been perceived. According to the presentation in the Anapanasati Sutta, the absence of such desires and discontent constitutes an important factor in carrying out the comparatively subtle and sophisticated meditations listed for the contemplation of Dhammas. It's the fourth section of Satipatthana. This relates the absence of desires and discontent to an advanced stage of Satipatthana, Thus, vinaya, uh, as the completed action of having removed desires and discontent, represents more advanced levels of satipatthana. The discourses often refer to such advanced stages of satipatthana contemplation as well-established supatitita. Uh, At these more advanced stages of satipatthana, impartial awareness is so firmly established, supatitita. Supatitita, <laughs> that one is effortlessly able to maintain dispassionate observation without reacting with desires and discontent. So that's saying that the the quality of mindfulness is is strong and clear. And so when there's a, a, a an experience of liking and something, then the the mind doesn't cross that bridge into uh, into wanting and, and and getting and possessing. Or if it uh, experiences disliking, it doesn't cross that bridge and get into uh, rejection and aversion and negativity and wanting to get rid of, but just knows liking, disliking <coughs> in a clear and straightforward way. Conversely, vinaya, as a simultaneous action, as the act of removing, taking place in the present, indicates a purpose of the initial stages of Satipatthana practice. During these initial stages, the task is to build up a degree of inner equipoise, or balance, within, <coughs> sorry, within which desires and discontent are held at bay. These initial stages of satipatthana parallel sense restraint, which combines bare sati with deliberate effort in order to avoid or counterbalance desires and discontent. So he's saying that... Um, the vinaya, the removing, that's part of your, your attitude, that's sort of the sense of, okay, I try not to follow that, those feelings of like and dislike. Um, and that's partnered by uh, the, the way that you choose to, to um, uh, say, 
uh, advert or what you, the way you choose to direct your attention, what you look at, what you're listening to, what you're, you're doing with the senses. So that sense restraint is more to do with the external action and the external choices, and then the satipatthana um, is to do with the internal attitude. These initial stages of satipatthana parallel sense restraint which combines bare sati with deliberate effort in order to avoid or counterbalance desires and discontent. Although sense restraint precedes proper meditation practice in the gradual path scheme, this does not imply that sense restraint is completed at an exact point in time, only after which one moves on to formal practice. In actual practice, the two overlap to a considerable degree so that sense restraint can be considered part of satipatthana practice, particularly at those stages when desires and discontent have not yet been completely removed. Although the initial stages of satipatthana practice may not require the prior establishment of a high level of concentration or the complete removal of unwholesome states of mind, these are necessary for the advanced stages of the practice that are to lead up to realization. This necessity will occupy me during most of the remainder of this chapter, in which I will investigate in more detail the relationship of concentration to the progress towards realization. As a preparation for this investigation, I'll first attempt to clarify the implications of the relevant terms concentration, samadhi, right concentration, samadhi, and absorption, jhana. This is a very, um, this point about sense restraint. And the the um, um, the kind of establishment of the the of the practice and the, the say the sort of firmness of mindfulness is is really uh, 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 very useful because it can be that uh, you think that your mindfulness is very strong so therefore you quote unquote don't have to bother so much with sense restraint you think okay. My mind is really clear. I'm, I'm really, you know, the practice is very, very strong. I'm totally cool here. Everything is is really, uh, really under control. So, I, therefore, I don't have to bother being so uh, so careful or so restrained. Or I can, uh, <clears throat> you know, let the dog out as it, and <laughs> to play in the garden, as it were. And so that um, uh, that is. I don't know if any of you have ever had that sort of thought or that kind of experience. I certainly have. And it's an extremely serious error. <laughs> you can make a considerable... Um, you know, if, you've, if you've sort of labelled... You know, you've given yourself the, the label of, OK, everything's good here. Um, uh, I'm really in, in clear space and don't have to worry too much. You sort of... And then going along with that idea, then you can be... Uh, uh, unconscious to the degree to which the mind is getting habituated to um, following sense desires, to acting on aversion, and the mind is categorizing it. Oh, I'm just being mindful of this. I'm I'm fully aware. This is nothing. Nothing here is unwholesome or obstructive, because I. And, but it's only because you've labeled it that way. <laughs> you've you've uh, sort of uh, given it that kind of a, of a designation. And the, uh, the the mind is not really noticing. Well, hang on, hang on a minute. <laughs> you really are chasing after this, or you really are running away from that. But let's be realistic. Let's you know, acknowledge this is uh, you. You are getting lost in this. You are getting uh, carried away by desire and, and aversion. So 
<coughs> notice that. So it can be um, uh, 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 a, um, a major obstruction if we sort of go with that idea of oh my practice is really strong or um, I don't need I don't need to uh, bother with uh, this or that and just that very term I don't need to bother is a is a sort of red flag <laughs> wait 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 yeah. why is it a bother to exercise sense restraint he's like he was well, why would the bother Buddha, why would the Buddha bother to meditate when he has been totally enlightened for thirty years why would why would he bother to do mindfulness of breathing or why would he bother to do walking meditation why would he bother to keep the Vinaya when he's completely beyond suffering so just even that question is assuming that it is a bother (laughs) it's a problem or it's an obstruction to exercise restraint or it's an obstruction to follow your breath and and such like so the the Buddha made it it clear it was actually he really enjoyed mindfulness of breathing is a pleasant abiding it's like a it's a nice place to hang out, just to be with the, the cycles of the breath. So uh, this this little area, he doesn't go into it in great detail, but I, I feel that's an, uh, speaking from extensive and painful experience <laughs> in this uh, this zone. That uh, it's a um, it's um, far wiser to to be bringing that. Uh, Quality of of reflection in there. Say, well, hang on a minute. Is this the case? Am I, uh, am I, uh, just am I actually being guided by desire and aversion? But I'm just telling myself that I'm not. Am I just sort of kidding myself? And uh, by the way, I'm I'm labeling things, or I I think I, I've reached some sort of uh, realization. You know, what's actually going on here? You know, what, what, what's what's the reality of it? And to be guided by the the reality of things rather than your um, your own kind of assessment or the way that you you, you think and it's uh, I've known people um, often it's like and this is one of the reasons why Ajahn Chah would never talk about people's levels of accomplishment and even the Ajahn Sumedha would similarly be very very cautious um, but uh, <coughs> he would um, when some of someone, and I've been with him, and this, this has happened in a retreat. When someone said, "Well, Ajahn, if my mind is like this, you know, I've got to, I'm listening to the sound of silence, and you know, I'm I'm really you know awake the whole time, and uh, you know, I've got really kind of no attachment to desire or aversion or fear, you know, is uh, uh, have I reached stream entry? You know, have I, uh, you know, is this uh, is this a good, uh, you know, am, am I on the right path?" And sometimes, in the way that they phrase the questions, they'll, uh, uh, you know, and oftentimes, Lumpur Sumedha would be very, um, he, would, he would say something, well, well, I wouldn't put it like that, or <laughs> it's not useful to think in terms of attainment. And then they, what they hear is, oh, Ajahn Sumedha said, I'm a stream enterer. <laughs> I have a direct experience of this uh, with uh, one, uh, a couple of different lay people. And one, he actually misheard what Lumpur said because he, he there's a state of mind called sobana jitta. Sobana means beautiful, so sobana like sobano <laughs> means beautiful. Sobana jitta means beautiful mind. And so, uh, after one particular retreat, this this uh, layman, he had this extremely intense uh, uh, meditation meditation state where e- uh, everything he saw uh, was beautiful. 
you know, the, then there was this incredible radiance and delight in, in everything that was happening. And, and Lumpur Sumedho had had that same kind of experience when he was a novice. He said even the cracked plastic dish in the water jar was exquisitely beautiful. It was fantastic. It was glorious, lovely. The cracks in the wooden planking on the side of the kuti was, was exquisitely formed and everything was... So uh, the, uh, this, this uh, particular person... Uh, asked Lumpur Sumedho about that state and he said, oh, it's called Sobhana Jitta. He, he heard, he didn't hear Sobhana, he heard Sotapanna. So, so he was quite happy saying, oh, Ajahn Sumedho told me I'm a Sotapanna. Like, no, it's just got a hearing problem. You know. <laughs> he did spend a lot of time in the workshop you know, around uh, machine tools. And that maybe was the was the issue, but he he heard what Lumpur said was so beneficial because I, I actually followed it up a few years later because this this fellow said to me, yeah, Lumpur Sameda told me I was a, a, Ajahn Sameda told me I'm a Sotapanna. I don't think so, you know, because he just wouldn't talk in those ways usually, and then uh, <coughs> so I, I chose waited for the right moment and so. Uh, Chatted with Lumpur and uh, and said, uh, you know, had he ever talked about that, or would he ever, did he ever use that kind of language in talking to people? He said, no, no, it's really curious because this this particular fellow said that that he said he was a soda punter. Really? What what was that about? And so I and and uh, so I recounted. It was quite a number of years before, and um, and he said, oh no, I said sobhanajitta. It's like because that's the same as what I had in Nongkai. It's like it was very, very similar. That's, that wasn't Sotapanna at all. <laughs> so it's like blessed are the cheesemakers, you know. <laughs> Ashton Samedo said, "I'm a cheesemaker." No, he said, uh, "You're a peacemaker." <laughs> so we have to be be careful about these these things and and uh, and misreading. I, I, one fellow, his whole uh, marriage fell apart and. Uh, because of and ended up being very alienated from his family on account of of uh, <coughs> of so misreading a, a sort of meditation state that came out of a retreat he said okay uh, i'm really i'm totally detached i've uh, you know uh, uh, Ajahn tomatoes affirmed my insight and, like, and again when you follow it up it's like i did what <laughs> no i just i just uh, you know said that's a, a wholesome state of mind or yes your practice it sounds like it's going well but then, then having said, oh, you know, there, therefore I, I'm, uh, uh, I've been, I, I've been affirmed by the teacher. The Ajahn has said, yes, well done. You're on the right path. Or, you're, or they've heard he thinks I'm a dream enterer or a non-returner or something. And then, therefore, everything I do must be wise and good. Strange but true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That, oh, well, if I'm a stream enter or I'm a, a once returner or a non returner therefore, well, I can't really make that many mistakes, can I? And so then they start making very stupid mistakes. But with the label of, oh, I've got this really great accomplishment, therefore everything I do is good. If other people don't understand it, that's their problem. So I would say that's your problem. <laughs> so it's a, um, uh, it's a very um, significant an uh, area of practice to be careful how uh, we we label experiences or, or we um, looking for affirmation from the from the teacher um, and um, to be uh, not taking things 
not being presumptuous, not making, uh, um, say, uh, assessments about our own mind or our state of, of being that are not um, backed up, but to, to be looking directly at, well, actually, you really are obsessed about that. <laughs> this, is, this is genuine, ordinary, off-the-shelf negativity. <laughs> That's what you're experiencing. You, this is, or this is just standard, ordinary, everyday, garden-variety craving. This is just sense desire. Don't don't kid yourself that you're beyond it because you want more of it. It's it's craving. It's just karma chanda. You're not beyond it at all, despite how you might like to label it. So it's uh, a very uh, being realistic and being honest with yourself, and uh, is very important. And also listening to your kalyanamita, your spiritual friends that will say, <coughs> yeah, when. When, uh, when you casually mention that, oh, you know, Lumpur Sameda told me I was a stream enterer, but, or, you know, Ajahn Chah said, you know, well, um, I don't think he quite meant it like that, or, well, you know, you, maybe uh, you shouldn't read it quite that way because, yeah, I, uh, uh, I wouldn't make uh, too many presumptions. So uh, this is one of the areas spiritual friendship is, is enormously important where we can give each other sort of feedback to, uh, and, uh, say, supportive insight into how we might be assessing things. Yes? That one can reasonably conclude that maybe there's no, no benefit at all in knowing or not knowing whether one is an agreement and simply saying, I don't care, I will just do my practice. Or is there That's, any benefit yeah. at all to knowing at all? Or should I just drop that question completely? Um, well, uh, if you follow the example of, uh, say, uh, Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumedho, then they're, they are, they're quite, um, I wouldn't say dismissive, but uh, say there's not much value in trying to, to, to think in those terms. And uh, uh, you know, Lumpur Sumedho tells very funny stories about how he'd try and maneuver Ajahn Chah into telling him whether he was a stream enterer or not. And, you know, and uh, Ajahn Chah was not someone you could maneuver he could see you coming like a mile and a half away. <laughs> so uh, uh, he says, Sumedho, if you're still in doubt, it means you're not a stream enterer. <laughs> Just, <laughs> but he would also say things like, yeah, uh, if you've been in the monastery for more than five years and you're not a stream enterer, you've been wasting your time. Yeah. Thus have I heard. So, but he basically, it's not worth. It's not. There's no point thinking about it, okay. because he, you, you know, the 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 mind that wants to know um, where I am at is based on is based in self view. And the first of the uh, of the fetters to be let go of is uh, I am the body. I am the personality. It's, it's self view. Sakayaditi. So that, uh, and like, uh, there was a really interesting. Um, Retreat. I don't know where Ajahn Sundra was there. When Lumpur Sumedho was teaching that retreat in California, I think it was 2005, were you there that year? 2005, were you there that year? No, I was here. Yeah, so, um, so, as I said, he never talks about stream entry or the levels of attainment, but every single Dhamma talk for a whole 10-day retreat, everything was about uh, self-view, attachment to conventions, and getting beyond doubt. So like every every morning reflection, every evening Dhamma talk, everything was about the first three fetters. 
and breaking through the first three fetters. And he never mentions stream entry once. So it's like, here's the toolkit, here's the toolkit, here's how you use it, this is how you use this tool, this is how you use this one, here's how you use this one. And so this is how you do it, this is how you do it, this is how you do it. And then never talking about, uh, about the, um, the, the things in terms of a level of attainment, but just giving you the kit, the, the, the means to, um, to make the breakthrough. So in, the, in, the, in the chanting, the evening chanting, there's, in connection to this, where, where there's a recitation of the ten frequent recollections for monks, mm -hmm. one of them, I think it's the last one, or one of the last ones is... Has my practice borne fruit of, with freedom or insight, so that at the end of my life I need not be ashamed when yeah, questioned by my spiritual companions? Yeah, exactly. So is it, it seems kind of strange that they would be, that they would be asked is this what happens? Monks are asked by the companions. It doesn't really work quite that way. I mean, the, the, the language of the chanting is quite stylized. But um, uh, I, my experience of the, being in the Sangha for a long time is people don't come up to you and say, you know, so what accomplishment have you reached? And, and, uh, but it's, it's far more... Sort of informal and uh, and loose, and you know you. Uh, it's a stylized way of speaking, but it's also there to help you know stoke the fire of of, uh, of um, enthusiasm for the practice in the sense of okay, get on get on with it. You know, don't don't waste time. Or like the days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Oops. So it's, it's, de it's deliberately threatening to the habits of self-view and encouraging to the, the habits of the factors of enlightenment. Okay, so um, next section, you can just read a little bit of this, is about concentration, right concentration and absorption. The noun samadhi is related to the verb samadahati, to put together, or to collect, such as when one collects wood to kindle a fire. So that collecting, getting sticks together to, to start a fire with. Samadhi thus stands for collecting oneself, in the sense of composure or unification of the mind. The discourses use the term concentration, samadhi, in a surprisingly broad manner, relating it to walking meditation, for example, or to the observing uh, of the arising and passing away of feelings and cognitions, or to contemplating the arising and passing away of the five aggregates. In a passage from the Anguttara Nikaya, even the four Satipatthanas are treated as a form of concentration. These occurrences demonstrate that as used in the discourses, the term concentration, samadhi, is not restricted to the development of calm, samatha, only, but can also refer to the realm of insight meditation, vipassana. Turning to right concentration, samadhi, here one finds time and again that the discourses equate right concentration with the four absorptions, jhana. 
This is of considerable importance since right concentration is a prerequisite for awakening. Taking this definition literally, the development of right concentration requires the ability to attain all four absorptions. However, several discourses allow for full awakening based only on the ability to attain the first absorption. This suggests that even the first absorption may be sufficient in terms of concentrative ability to enable the breakthrough to full awakening. And that's also, uh, if you're familiar with the discourses, you have numerous occasions where people listening to a Dhamma talk reach full enlightenment. Uh, so like the, the fire sermon that we, uh, that we recite, that's, that's the Buddha's, not that the Buddha was kind of uh, keeping score, but that's, that's when he set the record. Was uh, a, a thousand people became arahants during uh, uh, as a result of hearing that dhamma talk, so they uh, they were hearing, they were awake and, and listening to the talk, so that uh, they were they were, perhaps their, their concentration was at level of first jhana of uh, where you can they're still uh, thinking and uh, uh, exploring vitaka and vichara or sustained and applied thought. But uh, they certainly weren't in in uh, sort of fourth jhana. Uh, they're, they're listening to a dhamma talk, and so and, and so that uh, well, like the the five um, disciples uh, during the course of the uh, uh, the Anattalakana Sutta, the discourse on not self. They they uh, they were listening to the Buddha's teaching, and they became arahants as they were listening to the teaching. Yes, Alex. Um, I was wondering, was it uh, a momentary happiness that? Or was it they were meditating on the first jhana for like an hour before the before the speech was made, or they entered the jhana as they heard it, and at, at that moment... You'll have to develop the psychic power of travelling back in time to go and ask them, because I do not know. No, but is, it, I mean, is, that, is it possible to have a jhana at just a, a short moment in time? Yeah, it's, a, it's called kanika samadhi. Right. But, uh, and, and the... Um, uh, to me, it's, it's just th- their mind is uh, they're, they're listening carefully. I mean, it's like if you are if you're listening to a dhamma talk and you're really paying attention, you're f- you're it is uh, a kind of, uh, of acute samadhi because you're you're focused on the present moment. You're you know you're you're focused on the the verbal realm and the conceptual realm. But vitaka and vichara are, are still present in first jhana. Vitaka is conceptual thought or, or uh, the and vichara. Is uh, well, it's called sustained and applied thought, and so that there is the um, uh, uh, the rousing of a of a thought, and then the sustaining the attention upon it. So, vitaka and vichara are part of the first first jhana, and so to me, uh, it's uh, I would say that if you're listening to a, a dhamma talk by the Buddha, <laughs> uh, uh, in that in that situation, you're you're paying close attention, your your mind isn't wandering, your you're comprehending the words, the cons- and your own quality of understanding is being engaged to this extent where you could become an arahant through hearing those words. But it, it's uh, so it's a kind of uh, absorption, and also if you had the experience of sitting in on a really um, uh, compelling dhamma talk or one that you're you're really interested in, that you know the, the talk can be an hour long and it's, and the time goes by as if no time has gone by at all. But oh my goodness, it's in an hour. How, how did that happen? So that it's, uh, and um, the, I'm sure opinions vary. 
I know opinions vary, but I would say that that it, the, if there's a sufficient uh, focus of mind and clarity of insight to reach arahantship, you, there's uh, the mind is not wandering, yeah. but it's listening. It's it's in a a state of of listening, contemplating, comprehending, and uh, and the heart is being transformed as those words are being heard. I don't know. Is it the case that in the general the five senses are gone? Um, well, I would say not. I mean, it's the, the opinions vary, but um, the uh, uh, and so some people say if you're in jhana at all, then you can't hear anything. But um, I would uh, I would say that's a, an exaggeration, uh, and particularly because. You know the the vitaka and vichara is still part of the vachi sankara, kind of the the the, the that's a verbal formation. So that the you can be a, a paying attention to the internal um, for word forms, but um, the uh, yeah I'd say for for certainly for um, the access concentration the. Um, the upachara samadhi and then first jhana is that uh, it's, it's a it's a fairly um, um, low level degree of absorption and so I would say that uh, yeah that the the faculty of, of the sense of the body the the, the feelings of the bo- of the body are, are definitely discernible and sounds around and then as the absorption gets Stronger than that, that that recedes. But again, this is a subject of of, uh, of debate. But uh, if you consider that vitaka, uh, you, you have the vitaka and vichara are part of the qualities of first jhana. So that that's it's the it's a um, so a verbal form. I would say it, it doesn't necessarily it doesn't indicate that all hearing or you know the, the, uh, is completely shut off to the outside. Or all sense of the body, because also the descriptions of the um, of the of the four, uh, four jhanas are often there's quite a strong um, and and graphic description of the feelings of the body, like the body, the whole being drenched, steeped, filled with with the um, with the uh, with the uh, sense of pleasure. So there's a feeling of the body. The presence of the body is is being discerned even in those states. So it might not be that you can hearing sound, but certainly the the um, uh, the, uh, the physical body consciousness, potabha, vinyana, is um, is being uh, is being registered. So maybe I'll just read a little bit more to the end of this, and then we'll call it quits there for the day. So this suggests that even the first absorption, first jhana, may be sufficient in terms of concentrative ability to enable the breakthrough to full awakening. So I would agree with that. Interestingly, in the Mahachatarisaka Sutta, that's the Great Forty again, Majima 117, and several other discourses, another definition of right concentration can be found that doesn't mention the absorptions at all. The importance of the Mahachatarisaka Sutta to the present discussion is further highlighted in the preamble to this discourse, 
which states the topic to be a teaching on right concentration. So it's a teaching about right concentration, and it doesn't mention the jhanas at all. That's what the point he's making. The definition of right concentration given here speaks of unification of the mind, chitase, chitase kagata, in interdependence with the seven other path factors. So unification of mind um, is uh, based on the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path, so that, that samadhi is, uh, is um, seen as part of a whole uh, Eightfold Path. And as it says then, that is, in order for unification of the mind to become right, sama, uh, right concentration, it needs to be contextualized within the Noble Eightfold Path scheme so that it's uh, the rightness of the samadhi is it's uh, being related to uh, the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path. Definitions of right concentration that do not mention absorption attainment can also be found in the Abhidhamma and in the commentaries. Thus the decisive factor that qualifies concentration as right is not just a question of the depth of concentration achieved, but is concerned with the purpose for which the concentration is employed, so that's in terms of relating to the other factors of the path. In particular, the presence of the path factor right view is indispensable. By way of contrast, the Buddha's former teachers, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta, despite their deep concentration attainments, were not endowed with right concentration because of the absence of right view. This goes to show that the ability to attain absorption in itself does not yet constitute the fulfillment of the path factor of right concentration. A similar nuance underlies the qualification samma, right, which literally means togetherness or to be connected in one. Thus to speak of the four absorptions or of unification of the mind as right, quote-unquote, concentration, does not simply mean that these are right and all else is wrong, but points to the need to incorporate the development of concentration into the Noble Eightfold Path. Such a stipulation is not without practical relevance, since although the experience of absorption is a powerful tool to diminish craving and attachment in regards to the five senses, it all too easily lends itself to stimulating craving for and attachment to these sublime mind-door experiences. But only concentration untainted by craving can act as a full-fledged path factor of the Noble Eightfold Path leading to the eradication of Dukkha. It is this quality, and not just the depth of concentration achieved, that turns a concentrative attainment into right concentration. To sum up, to speak of right concentration is not simply a question of being able to attain absorption, since the decisive criterion for describing concentration as right is whether it's developed in conjunction with the other factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. There's a, uh, just to finish with a famous uh, story that probably a number of you are familiar with, is um, when uh, uh, Achan Mahabur was a young monk practicing with, with uh, Achan Man, 
the, the style of practice would be that you would uh, stay with the teacher for a little while and receive instruction and then go off to some more remote place and practice by yourself uh, in the forest and come back again after a few months and check in with the teacher. So the young Ajahn Mahabur had been a study monk before, uh, coming to, to be with Ajahn Man, had, uh, um, had, had arrived and asked to be his student and was very, very uh, keen on the, the practice. And so he received sort of guidance in the meditation, went off to meditate by himself, and, and he got uh, um, into some of these very, very profound states of concentration and extremely blissful and um, beautiful um, uh, bright states of mind. So he was, he was quite um, delighted with this and went back to, to visit uh, Venerable Ajahn Man. And, and so Ajahn Man predictably asked him, you know, how's your practice been going? And he said, oh, well, actually, <laughs> and told him about these, uh, these uh, profound states of absorption of the deep uh, jhana states and uh, I believe arupa, uh, formless states of absorption. He could sit for hours or days and days uh, absorbed in these um, the very uh, bright and beautiful mind states. And Ajahn Man uh, reputedly said, well, that's not going to do you any good. Um, far better not to bother getting into those deep absorptions. Just sustain your concentration at the level of, of access of uh, Upachara uh, Samadhi and um, just watch the rising and passing away of the five khandhas. Yeah, just to, uh, that'll be far more helpful to you and to help you develop insight. And uh, the young Ajahn Mahabur famously disagreed with the teacher and they got into this argument that uh, you could hear uh, throughout the forest, apparently. <laughs> and the other more experienced and senior monks were like, I think, this kid, this, this young monk who's uh, just showed up a little while ago, he's arguing with the Ajahn, this is outrageous, this is impossible. But Ajahn Mahabur was very forthright and sure of himself and he was... Um, uh, he was sure he was right because he couldn't believe how these these states were so fantastic, so wonderful, how there could be anything wrong with them. So he famously disagreed with the teacher and went off um, feeling that Ajahn Man was wrong in this instance. So he then went back to, to go practice by himself, but of course, um, now having created this obstacle of arguing with the teacher <laughs> or various other uh, causes, he then couldn't get back into those states of absorption. No matter how hard he tried, and uh, and he really worked at it and did everything he could, but he couldn't get his mind into those same beautiful bright states, and and so uh, and so then a, a few weeks later he came back to Ajahn Man, kind of asking for forgiveness and guidance and sort of I couldn't get back there, and he said that, but during that time he had this this realization that. Um, if, and the way he put it was, uh, if anyone else uh, other than Ajahn Man had been responsible for taking those beautiful states away from me, I would have killed them. It was an interesting statement. So there's wholesome states of mind, incredibly refined and bright and radiant, but become a, a motivation for, for murder. <laughs> yeah, Ajahn Mahabur was a bit sort of outspoken, but yeah, kind of a bit hyperbolic maybe. <laughs> but uh, it's a powerful statement. If anyone other than Ajahn Man had been responsible for taking those, uh, for, for making those states inaccessible to me, I would have killed them. So um, he could see. Hang on a minute. There's something wrong with this picture. <laughs> These are so beautiful. They're so good. But I'm ready to, to to kill someone because they've been taken away from me. Therefore, there's some 
deep attachment going on. So I'm, 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 that's a clear sign I'm handling this incorrectly. And so that was the, the kind of thing I, I, uh, I understand that Ajahn Mum was pointing to. It's like, yes, these are very beautiful and wholesome, but the, the way that you're holding on to them is going to cause a lot of suffering. So I'll leave it there for today. <laughs>